Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC and your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from coastal construction to renewable energy, brownfields redevelopment and solid waste management, the list goes on. I'm really excited today. Um, Our episode is a really interesting one. I've got three guests that are all incredibly well-versed in sort of construction, sustainability and construction. It's a topic I know very little about, so I'm really excited to learn more. I have with me today Elizabeth Murphy, who is a sustainability manager with Shawmut Design and Construction, Caroline Murray, a project executive and sustainability manager with Turner Construction Company, and Abby Roberts, um, headquarters sustainability program manager, also with Turner. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. So there's a lot of topics under the umbrella of sustainability within construction. Um, So let's learn a little bit about your backgrounds first and how you got to where you are today, because I don't know how you become a sustainability manager in a construction company. And then we can dive a little bit more into the sort of nitty gritty of sustainability and construction. So Caroline, why don't we start with you? What, what, what is your your career journey so far? So I'm of over 20-something years in the industry, and I actually didn't start in sustainability. I liked the idea of construction. I liked the idea of spending a little bit of time at my desk doing some engineering work and then putting on those boots and getting muddy and watching people work with tools. And then as you know, I started to move through the ranks, as they say, I started seeing a lot of waste waste everything from construction debris to an open window with the heat blasting. And I got concerned about, um, you know, how can we do better? Because you would hear environmental headlines in the news, but never really so much during that construction process. Um, Also at the time, LEED was brand new. um, And I thought that that might be something good for my career if I could start learning about that. Now those are almost becoming compulsory all the rules and points you get there. So I think that was a pretty smart move. So I guess if I had any advice, it would be if you see a niche, if you see an opening, get in there, even if you feel like you don't know what you're doing. If you're the first one, you become the expert. So I have to ask, if you were one of the first ones, did you create positions within firms or did you were you talking with, you know, your boss one day and like, you know, I've really been reading up a lot about sustainability stuff like Can I integrate that more into my job? How did you start to pull that in? Um, So it does start with putting your elbows out a little bit and kind of making that space for yourself. I think it takes until the industry is catching up and realizing the importance of that, that it can really turn into a viable career avenue. Um, For a while, as, as we sometimes say, I was doing the sustainability work for my 45th to 50th hour during the week. It was a kind of a little hobby. And now that's kind of developed into more of a career path. Would you say over the years you had people sort of encouraging that and kind of enjoying the fact that you were doing that from your 45th to 50th hour? Or was it, were you kind of pushing sometimes for that? Uh, I was pushing. Um, sometimes there was some pushback on, well, how does this really help the client? Or how does it affect the bottom line? And so I found that if I could try and find an angle angle to incorporate safety into that, all of a sudden people were waking up. Um, And we have, we kind of have what we call the four Ps, where when we look at any sustainability initiative, we look at them for the people, planet, profit, and project. So how does it affect the community around you? How does it affect the bottom line? 
how does it improve safety? How does it improve human health? And how does it make the process of construction easier? So if you can nail those, you're there. And what we find is when you look at any sustainability initiative and you focus on the planet, that there's always a co-benefit. There's always savings. There's always safety. And there's always improved human health. That's really cool. Great. Great background. <laughs> how about you, Elizabeth? How did you get to where you are? So I uh, was always really interested in the outdoors. Um, I grew up in a rural area, um, so I was always, you know, playing outside. Um, my dad worked in construction. He has his whole life, so I was interested in what he did. Um, so I went to undergrad for architecture, um, but it was really more art history. I just loved learning about buildings, um, but I still knew that I wanted to head in the direction of sustainable building in some form. So I interned at Summit my senior year. Uh, my brother had worked there, so I kind of got my foot in the door. Um, and I, I, I started working there when I graduated college. Um, I started in their construction management skills training program. So you rotate between different positions. I thought that was really important for me to kind of have that basis um, and understanding how construction works and what our actual roles are uh, for, for the project. Um, while I was in that program, I went to uh, graduate school and got my degree in sustainable building systems. Um, and that, I think, really helped me kind of, um, I guess, like bolster my resume and say that I am qualified for this type of <laughs> role. Um, I think I, I share some of the, you know, processes that, that Caroline talked about. Um, at the time, my company was structured differently. So we worked in different divisions. I was in hospitality. Um, and that was maybe not the best group for uh, an attention or, or a prior prioritization for sustainability. Um, and we eventually merged. So now we're the New England group. We're the the, the West Division, and um, you share resources, the clients, um, you know, a lot of our clients in New England are academic, and, and they certainly care um, a lot about sustainability. Um, they're innovative and trying new things. So over time, I kind of just, you know, kept kept pushing and putting it out there. And it was, I, I was definitely supported in that um, process, but it was the same question, you know, is this profitable for us? Is it a role that's necessary in construction or are we duplicating something that a sustainability consultant or a designer is doing? Um, so really just showing, you know, the effort and, and the benefit of having um, that type of role in, in the construction manager field. Great. Thank you. And Abby, what about you? Yeah, so similar to both of you guys, um, Caroline and I have been in this industry for 20 plus years. Um, and like Elizabeth, I was always passionate about the environment. Um, there was an environmental club in high school that I was part of, but sustainability wasn't the buzzword. And there weren't very many majors that you could um, take. And I was looking at either environmental studies. Um, and then my dad said, Abby, you're really great at math and science. You should look at engineering. And so I landed on environmental engineering. And the first semester I started taking classes and I realized it was about water and wastewater treatment. And that wasn't really where my interest lied. 
Um, I ended up getting a degree in civil engineering and graduating school, worked for a design firm um, out in California for about six years doing civil engineering. And I, I realized that I was always in the office behind the computer and I wanted something more hands-on. So I, you know, with a little tug from my mom about moving back home, I came back to Boston and uh, talked to a bunch of folks and eventually decided construction was where I wanted to proceed with my career. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities at the time, but I always think of sustainability as sort of this grassroots efforts. You find opportunities, you volunteer, you participate. I, you know, um, when Boston was developing their climate ready plan, I was part of those working groups, giving some insights of it. It was really fun to see how it started expanding. Um, and then, you know, I was running jobs. I was out in the field uh, in construction, doing sort of that day to day, had the opportunity to be a sustainability manager within Boston. And things are just changing and growing exponentially. And it's been really exciting to see how our company is evolving. What was maybe one or two full time positions has now um, I'm part of a headquarters team where there's eight of us full time. And then we have regional people, some full-time, some part-time. And then we also have sustainability managers and our network is expanding. And it's really exciting to have all these people together interested in sustainability. Where there was not a position in sustainability I started, there's lots of opportunities now. So it's it's pretty fun. That's really great. And it's great. interesting here. I'm hearing all these voices and we're all women and you don't normally think of a bunch of women working in construction. But when I go to panels and, um, you know, take webinars and things, it does seem to be more than 50% women. And I, I don't think that that's any kind of stereotype that we're somehow more nurturing or anything like that. I think maybe we identified an area where we could differentiate ourselves. And I think, well, in my case, at least, I kind of took that as a career move to kind of get a little angle on my own career path. And it seems to work out pretty well, but I don't think that I'm the only one in that category. Yeah, it is kind of interesting when you think of that. You know, in the construction industry, we have all been the only woman in the room at some point, right? For sure, and there's yeah. definitely a shift in sustainability where the women are dominating that. Go girl power. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Thanks for all those reflections. I think that can be really helpful for folks who just aren't sure what they want to do and hear a little bit more. I, I think it's really interesting that your reflection on your graduate degree, Elizabeth, because it gave you that little bit of like um, credential that you might have needed to, to move into that role. And I think sometimes you're not sure as a student if you should do graduate school or not. So I'm sure that doesn't you don't need to do graduate school, I'm sure. But it's nice to hear that for you, your graduate degree made a lot of sense for you and it, it probably helped you in your career. So if there are folks thinking about it, maybe it would be a useful decision for them. You never know. <laughs> so let's get into a little bit more about what it is that you all do, like sustainability within the construction industry. So um, one of the places we wanted to start was sort of the advances of the industry or the shift of the industry. And Caroline talked about it a little bit with, you know, when she first started, this wasn't, I mean, probably with you too, Abby, this wasn't really a thing. And and then since then, you know, LEAD, which I don't know what it stands for, but is the the way that it, the way that we often see buildings promoted as we are sustainable because we are LEED certified and you have to do all sorts of stuff to get there, right? And that came into play. And then I'm sure there's a shift that maybe preceded that and followed that. So um, maybe, Abby, do you want to just briefly 
start us off with talking about some of those shifts? Uh, sure. So, yeah, lead. I, I actually got to work on one of the first projects that um, Turner completed on lead. Um, I wasn't actually on that job, but they pulled me in to do the lead paperwork. And it was a wild, wild west then, right? It's not a Cinderella story. Unfortunately, they did not get certified, but there was a lot we know <laughs> at the time. But it, it was an interesting process. And I will say LEAD has had several different versions. And with each version, it's pushing the industry and doing a little bit more. Um, they're in the process of actually issuing the next version. So they've released the first platform or the first certification for for review but we do expect um, there's different categories like a core shell or interiors that you can apply for lead. But it has changed in the building industry. There's an expectation you have a better building if it's lead and you can get better rent. So it's, it's really changed the market. Um, we're also seeing there's a lot of different changes within Boston with the code and requirements, um, I would say Boston is definitely in the forefront of all of this, where we're electrifying our buildings. We've recognized that fossil fuels um, are really bad and looking for opportunities to um, electrify everything within the building and reduce their carbon footprint, which has a different way of looking at things. You have to engage with the utility companies, make sure that we are getting power right away, that the buildings are the most efficient they can be to kind of reduce, reduce some of those loads. It gets really complicated, but everybody's engaged and kind of talking about it right now. So I, I heard you talk about LEED and the way to think about LEED is that that's the health of the building. And then there's another certification called WELL, which is the health of the occupants of the building. And so now we're kind of moving into the next phase of that, where we're looking at the health of the materials that are used to construct the building and the energy loss of that building. So I think that we're getting, we're drilling down, drilling down almost to where does that screw head come from? Or how long is this piece of equipment going to last? And is it the most efficient one I can get? So it's kind of fun to watch the evolution of things. I do completely agree with Abby that we live in a fortunate area with very strict building codes and that a lot of this is is becoming required. Um, the idea that people are going to be altruistic and pay more money and spend more time constructing their buildings to make it more energy efficient because that's the right thing to do, I just don't think is realistic. Um, regulations and mandating is really the way to go. Now, there are some clients, higher ed clients, healthcare clients, tech clients that really do want to be that sharp edge of the sword. So I don't like slam anybody, but the truth is it's so helpful when there's a building code and mandate and specifications for your job site that you can help follow. So thank you to the designers and everybody that's looking at that. Um, yeah. And I guess just on top of that or, or kind of aligned with what you both are saying, um, there are so many different aspects of a project and what makes it healthy or, um, you know, reduce impact to the environment and to the people, you'll have things to consider. Um, you know, maybe Abby's education when she was talking about wastewater and, um, you know, polluting bodies of water, like that's, that's something that we need to think about. And I think that's become more standard in construction and, and can be viewed as almost separate 
from what people consider as you know sustainable construction today um it's, it's become standard practice but um you have material health and people are looking at the ingredients of what is actually in your products and is that safe for building occupants um i think covid brought up a lot of uh conversation around um hvac systems and ventilation um it also totally changed the dynamic of the workforce and our people in offices and are your buildings, um, you know, operating for full occupancy loads? Is there a way that the controls are recognizing that you have a lower occupancy level? Um, there are so many different aspects to it. So it's, it's a really cool field to be in and we're making progress. Um, I, you know, with the building codes, those are things that are mandating um, impacts to our um, building envelope, uh, your HVAC system, your, your uh, utility supplies themselves, how are you actually getting your energy to the building? Um, and I think something that maybe is the next big area to focus on is um, your materials and your, your embodied construct, uh, excuse me, your embodied carbon uh, with those materials. So talk a little bit more about that. What What is embodied carbon? Because up until last week's EBC Construction Demolition Summit, I did not know what embodied carbon was and um, was really interested to read a little bit about it. But tell me a little bit more. What What is that? What does that mean? Sure. So you have a building, if we're talking at that level, um, and there's so many different materials that make up that building. And really, those are products that before that were raw materials. So you kind of have to think of the whole life cycle um, of a building and you perform what's called a life cycle assessment or an LCA. And that starts in that uh, product phase with raw material extraction. It accounts for any um, materials, any energy, anything that you might need to extract, uh, manufacture, produce, ship that material. Then when you're on site, um, what does it actually take to build that building? Uh, what type of uh, you know, technology you're using, are you producing waste? And then at the end of, excuse me, then you go into the operational phase um, where the building's actually being occupied and run. And that is separate from embodied carbon. It's, it's related, but that typically is called your operational carbon. And that really boils down to how efficiently your building is running and, and what type of, um, you know, are you using renewable energy or fossil fuels? Um, and then end of life, uh, when the building is no longer in service, are you repurposing it? Is someone coming in to occupy that space? Um, are you renovating it, becoming uh, demolished? Does that material get recycled? Does it go to a landfill? So at all of these different life cycle stages, you have inputs and outputs, um, and you kind of look at what those actual impacts are. Some of them are human health impacts. Others are environmental impacts. One of those is your embodied carbon, um, which in terms of the life cycle assessment is typically referred to as global warming potential. So any of your carbon emissions and similar uh, greenhouse gas emissions contribute to global warming. So that's why those two are kind of synonymous. And obviously, we know climate change and global warming is extremely important. So that's why we're trying to reduce um, the embodied carbon as well. And I would just add to that, you know, by doing these life cycle uh, assessments, 
we've identified some key materials that really have a lot of attention and focus. So concrete being the number one um, has the biggest piece of the pie and impact. And there's a lot of folks looking at low carbon concrete and coming up with new solutions to um, generate the cement and, and use processes that have never been done before in the construction industry um, to really have an impact and reduce that carbon. Um, there's also things like mass timber, which is being analyzed in a, a whole different, um, or is it being analyzed as a comparison to swap out concrete where it's not like your single family home where you have your wood studs, but these are engineered uh, wood structures that have um, substantial strength, right? And you can do multiple floors. There's codes out there that allow you to go to certain heights. Um, Boston is starting to adapt that, and we have some projects going in there. But when you look at the carbon associated with a tree, versus the the cement and the concrete, there's a significant saving. So we're starting to see people make that analysis and lean in one way or another, or make some modifications to the designs to bring down that carbon. So one thing that you're talking about is sort of an interesting shift in material use, for example, and new ways to think about things and new technologies. How do you start to use those? Because there's a lot of permitting involved, right, in construction. And so if it's a new material to, you know, the permitting agency in charge, are they going to be willing to let you try it out? Or, you know, how does the, the interplay between you've got building codes requiring you to do like, you know, carbon friendly stuff, but then you want to be using certain materials, but they're saying, well, we don't know if that's proven yet. How, how does that interplay? Go ahead, Carolyn. So in the life of a building, there's the design phase. So as general contractors, we don't have much to do with that. That's really up to the design engineer. And then once the building is complete, as Elizabeth was saying, now you're operating, right? So again, we don't have a lot of influence there. That's about the building owner and the management. So where we have influence is during that construction period, which sounds small, but it's actually a lot because it's a very high emitting um activities, you know, like we're using a lot of diesel. We don't have permanent power. We created tons and tons and tons of waste. So that's really where we're focused. But to your specific question, where we can is because we build multiple, many, many projects all the time. We can provide guidance during that design phase to a client or to a designer. We can provide cost studies. We can provide special studies. We can compare to other similar type buildings and kind of help them move forward with the confidence to make those smart decisions. So I think that's that's where we can really bring some value. Yeah. And I would just say, add to that, there's other organizations out there, like specific with Mass Timber, there's an organization called the Woodworks that have developed case studies, have developed design guides, have um, sheets that you can provide with the fire department or an insurance company to explain about these structures, right? Um, we're all local in the New England area, but there's buildings of mass timber and all different low embodied carbon across the country. And we're kind of trying to share that information to get that comfort level. Um, there's also just have that conversation. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard one of the first mass timber projects when they were talking to the fire department, 
they were really worried and the code doesn't require necessarily a sprinkler system within the building, but the project decided to add a sprinkler system to that particular project to allow the fire department that comfort level, right? And then they can prove it out whether or not they need that in the yeah, future. That, that's a big hurdle. Nobody wants to be first. No. Right. Many people want to be second. Everybody wants to be third, right? <laughs> that concept's proven. So um, a lot of times the the intent and is there before the willingness or even the technology is there. So we need I find that across, across everything, EBC across, yeah, across everything that, you know, touches our organization and what we talk about. There are so many people saying our technology really works. Yeah. And then those, the powers that be are saying, we don't know if it works yet. You've only done like one small study or, you know, whatever it might be. And there's just that nervousness to be the first, as you say, Caroline. So, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> People don't even want to go to a restaurant without a recommendation or buy a new shampoo <laughs> unless their friend is and has tried it first. You know, that's so true. well, it's a that's a that's a really uh, that's a very fair point. Good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's true. <laughs> I also think it's about the application, right? Maybe don't do the whole building right. with carbon concrete, but maybe the sidewalks or maybe some areas that have. Um, a little less risk. Um, pick certain aspects to use it and get that comfort level. You know, like a decorative stairway or like seating area outside or something where you can play around with it and, and watch what happens over the years or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. What I would love to hear about is you talk about embodied carbon and operational carbon, but then we also talk about emissions and emissions reduction strategies. And to me, embodied carbon is talking about something very similar in my head to what emissions might be. So can we talk about what these terms mean and what they don't mean, how they might relate to each other? Because I, it almost, it all seems so wrapped up together. There's a lot of jargon and terminology here. <laughs> I'll take the first pass. Um, I think in theory, they're the same. So when we're talking about embodied carbon of a building or material, we're talking about emissions at various stages. So when we're talking about operational carbon, we're talking about the carbon that's being emitted or maybe it's not directly on site if you're not actually burning fossil fuels on site, but if you're using electricity, what are the emissions associated with generating that electricity somewhere else? So in all cases, you really are talking about what you're actually emitting into the air. I think the delineation is between where are you doing that in the, the supply chain or the life cycle. Um, and so for power station purposes of a building, um, you know, the operational carbon really is associated with that use phase and comparatively everything else is embodied within that, even though for someone else, their operational carbon could be at their manufacturing facility where they're producing the material that we then use. And I'll just add to that as well. Like, so, you know, Elizabeth touched on the life cycle analysis and the different phases, and there's a very specific phase for construction, right? And that's everything in the construction site. So it's all your equipment, all the diesel, if you're using propane, natural gas, and that area is still, not a lot of people are tracking. Um, you know, companies are starting to get into it. We've, we've been tracking for a little bit, but there's not a lot of data out there. 
um, on how much emissions are really coming from that phase. And from uh, Turner started in 2019 tra tracking the data. And, and if you think about it, construction takes several years to complete a project. So you don't really get the full picture until down the road a bit. But we think it's a lot higher than what everybody was assuming. So there was a lot of um, focus on the materials of the building, but I think that there is an impact in construction that people haven't been considering. So, you know, areas that were really eye-opening, and it, it kind of makes sense when you talk about it, but if you don't have temporary power and you're running diesel generators on site, that's going to be a significant part of your overall emissions for the project. If you have a schedule and you're in the dead of winter with finishes going in that have to meet the specifications to it for a certain temperature or humidity, and you do not have your mechanical systems up and running, you are bringing in a temporary heating system that maybe is powered by natural gas or propane or diesel that is running 24-7 and has a very significant impact to the emissions. And these are sort of means and methods that Caroline, Elizabeth, and I think about all the time, but most people who are not in construction are not really even considering that. And that's a piece where, um, you know, we are starting to implement hybrid generators where we're taking a generator and pairing it with a battery energy storage system. Really, really big batteries. That's cool. It's it's really fun. And, and um, you know, what started off really small, I'm seeing starting to scale up across the company. And you can save if it's a generator that was running, you know, 24 seven, we're saving anywhere from 50 to 70 percent in the diesel. And um, the rental companies also love it because the power is being run from the battery and it calls the generator on the demand and the generator will run at its most efficient level and then shut off and power up the battery. Hmm. And that means less maintenance to the generator, um, you, less filter changes, less issues with it, because oftentimes generators have to run at a minimum and the load is much lower. So it's very inefficient. So they get an efficient, Abby, less cost for fuel. And yeah. once you tell your client something costs less, you don't even have to talk about the availability right. <laughs> on board. <laughs> But it's a challenge because it's a new technology. Um, batteries are very expensive. So when folks look at that rental cost, our initial reaction is, oh, we can't afford that. But when you start pairing it with the fuel savings, especially in those applications where it's running more than eight hours, it actually saves the project money. And that's one of the things that we're trying to get that information out. And the quadruple bottom line that Caroline mentions, there's so many safety aspects, you know, less maintenance, less chance of somebody getting injured. You're not touching it as often. So um, also noise, right? Batteries are quiet. Um, if you've been around a generator, you you smell that diesel, you hear that hum, um, you know, so eliminating that makes a, a better job site just for the air that we're breathing and to be able to hear each other. It's just a safer situation. I love that you're talking about your quadruple bottom line, the, the four P's that Turner talks about, but I'm sure other companies have this a similar phrase or whatever. But um, once you start really looking at some new technology like that, you're like, this absolutely makes sense. People are breathing cleaner air. It's quieter for all of the neighbors. It's saving the company money and the client. Everybody's happy about that. And that's probably the most important thing for most people. 
but and and the 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 whole project probably feel, feels better with having these these generators that are paired with these batteries. That is a very cool. I love that example. I'm glad you brought that in. <laughs> I like them too. Yeah, and they're, and they're quieter. So should you have an emergency on your job site, True. it's easier to get people safety. Connected. So right again, it's safety. It's it's everything. Kinda, yeah, exactly. It's great. Cool. So one of the things that we all talked about before we started recording was sort of a lack of guidance for this industry in all of this that we're talking about. So does anybody want to comment a little bit about what is what do you mean by a lack of guidance? Because we've got things like lead. We have things like building codes. So where does this feeling of like we don't know where we're going or what we need to do come from? I think that's um, more in the lines of the greenhouse gas protocol, right? Okay. As we start to do the accounting, we talked about the life cycle analysis. But as a company, we also need to understand our emissions. And there's different buckets for that. Um, you might have heard some references to scopes one, two, and three. And I hate the way they describe them. So I always say, Scope one is the fuel that you use as a company, right? We mentioned diesel, natural gas, that. Scope two is the electricity that you use as a company. And then scope three is sort of your supply chain. All of our, for construction, it's all of our trade partners. And how you do that accounting, I think a lot of companies are trying to figure this out. Um, there's now regulations starting to come into the U.S., um, we have a parent company that's out of the UK, so we've actually been having to report this information for some time. But figuring out the buckets is challenging because, I mean, there's the, the greenhouse gas protocol. I forget how many hundred pages it is. Uh, very detailed, but it's for every industry. And I think we were all really hopeful for the next update. They were going to include construction, but unfortunately we found out that they will not be updating construction and how to do that accounting. So, um, you know, we are now talking amongst our peers. All the GCs are, you know, in communication. Well, what are you keeping in here? And wh what is your scope one? And what is your scope three? And trying to figure out that right alignment because that helps you understand your biggest impact and how, as a company, you can really reduce um, the carbon that's out there. And so it's been a very interesting process. When I first took on this position, I had no idea I would get into the accounting role, but I, it was really fun. As a company, I was part of the forefront. I actually figured out how to calculate our scopes one and two. And most of our scope is associated with the equipment that we rent. And I had to work a lot with our rental equipment company and run lots of reports and figure out equations and, you know, how figure out runtime. And it got really complicated, but I think I have a good idea of where we're at. And now we can start really focusing on areas of impact. Now, so, scope three, haven't quite figured that one out yet, but that's a 2024 goal. So is this, so you, you're talking about not greenhouse gas accounting for individual projects, but as a company, your company's greenhouse gas emissions and how to calculate them for your business. And what I under, what I'm getting is that um, the regulations, I know that in the EU, they're talking about some pretty uh, clear regulations on uh, greenhouse gas accounting and as it relates to ESG, right? Environment, um, social and governance stuff. 
and reporting for that as a business. And I'm assuming that's why it's coming to you from the UK, like this, this ask. Um, so is that, that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about greenhouse gas accounts. There's different buckets, right? So we do track on the project level, but sure. that combines the scope one, two, and three, right? right? Because it's, it's all the work that we're doing. But as a comp, as companies, we do have to break it out between those different um, pieces and you have more impact on what you control, right? So your scope one and two, you can directly impact. Um, we are working on impacting our supply chain and our scope three, um, but a lot of people are involved in that, right? Yeah. If we all get better at what we produce, our scope one and two, then in theory, our scope three gets better, right? For sure. Yeah, and I, I'd say that we are... The construction industry is unique in that we provide a service um, where our scope one and two missions are relatively easy to document and, and calculate, um, but the scope three really is our, our biggest impact. Um, it's not like we provide a service that is not negatively impacting. We, we play a major role, um, buildings do. In, in climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So for us, our scope three is probably our, our most important thing to figure out, but it's the most uh, complicated type of calculation to do really for, for anyone. Um, but I think um, for us, it's additionally important that we, that we have accurate accounting, um, but it does, it involves so many different uh, people in the supply chain, so it, it's challenging. And there's there's lots of different categories in scope three that you account for, and it's things like commuting, the the buildings that we turn over, yeah, the products that we use, like even our pens and right paper notebooks. So right. Well, this is great. This has been a great conversation. I know we have a lot more to talk about, and we'll find a way to get another episode recorded where we can talk about things like circularity, um, and maybe get a little bit more into, um like raw material use and building reuse and deconstruction and other things. So let's save that for next episode. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask you all that final question for all of my guests. So what has been capturing your attention this past week? Can be anything. Uh, Elizabeth, why don't you go first? I'll do a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> so the Abby, Caroline, and I are on the AJC of Massachusetts Sustainability Advisory Committee. Um, and the AGC is putting together an event uh, in two weeks. It's the Innovation Conference, um, and MB is actually moderating the panel. Um, so that's the 15th. Um, it's at the Bentley uh, Conference Center. If anyone is interested, it's going to be talking about sustainability, technology, safety. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Great. What about you, Caroline? Uh, I am from New Orleans originally, so oh. it is carnival season. So that oh. is on my mind. I'm listening to music and thinking about costumes. Uh, <laughs> but New Orleans and Boston actually have a lot of similarities. They're similar in size. They are both coastline cities, and they both have important rivers. So professionally, I'm always thinking about waterfront and how to keep that resilience um, and projects associated with that. So I think that's going to probably be the next frontier in construction. Yeah. Okay. And Abby, how about you? 
Well, I guess on a personal note, we all wear many hats, and I recently became a Girl Scout leader. Oh, uh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and we have avoided doing the cookies, but the pressure is on. Um, I don't Can't know. avoid it anymore. <laughs> Thankfully, we missed it this year, but maybe next year. If anybody needs cookies, you may, you may be able to reach out to me next year. I honestly don't know that I do. There's never a time when I don't want Thin Mint cookies. <laughs> So thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. And um, looking forward to a future conversation where we can talk about circularity. And uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. I really enjoyed today's episode. Sustainability in construction is such a big topic. And we took just a little bite out of it today. There's been a lot of progress in the construction world on decarbonization, electrification, managing emissions. But there is a lot more work to do. You will find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. Please interact with the podcast, like, rate, and review. It does get the word out more widely to a bigger audience. In two weeks, we will hear from an actual former on-camera meteorologist on how meteorology and climate science intersect, and from his engineering colleague on integrating that research into actual projects. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC Fall Intern Hayden Adair for his research and wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senek Music 2023.